Warning, this episode of Seriously Wrong contains deep political truths. Truth, so profound. They will be rejected today and rejected tomorrow, rejected for the foreseeable future. But in the long run of history, the vibrant truth shall be accepted as reality by all of humanity forever. Chartographers for generations, for millennia to come, will be taking these words, turning them into dots, into lines, on charts, the way politics belongs. First rejection, then mass adoption. That's what we expect. everyone and welcome back we are sean and aaron the wrong boys and you are listening to seriously wrong which can be found at the website seriously wrong s-r-s-l-y wrong.com we also got a patreon but enough with the business thanks for giving us your time and attention today it's gonna be fun that was great the little speed run you just got through everything no nonsense all the business out of the way now we have an extra few seconds for me to muse about it when we dawdle on that first part we miss out on some valuable musing time so that's why i thought hey i'm just going to try to speed run it and give you time to do what you did give me time to do what i'm doing and give you time to do whatever you're about to do well i appreciate it and i think the audience appreciates it as well i guess the topic for today's episode starts with a question which is what is the shape of politics. Yeah, I think at first listen, that sounds like a ridiculous question, like what is the sound of green? Yeah, I thought the answer was just the square with the lines down the middle. It's like an XY graph. Mm -hmm. And then you put your dot on the square where it goes. That's the actual shape, right? The actual literal shape of real politics out in the world of forms is some sort of four cornered square. Yeah, a square with lines in the middle. And there's like a point in the middle where the two lines meet. And that's centrism. Absolute center. And then you have the four quads around that, each representing their own distinct view of the world, their own ideology. People in the same quadrant get along. People in different quadrants don't get along. And it's just the shape. It's the shape of the world. It's the shape of politics. Actually, this is not true. Maps can't contain all the information. Even say if I'm mapping my house, I have to leave out details in order to make a map. That's what maps are, is they reduce details just to give you the useful parts. And a political spectrum or a political compass or a political chart is a map. It's a way of understanding according to the person who made it. It's a map of a thing that, unlike your house, doesn't have an actual shape. Like you can say, yes, to make a map of your house or a blueprint, like you have to leave off details. It can't be as detailed as the real thing because then it wouldn't be the map. It would just actually be the real thing. But with politics, it's even more abstract. Yeah, and it might be obvious when you look at me attempting to map my house that I've completely fucked it up. It makes no sense. The couch isn't there. The rooms aren't shaped like that. But when it comes to politics, because there isn't a physical thing to correspond to, it makes it a lot harder to tell whether or not it's complete nonsense or not. Especially if everyone thinks that the map is the territory, that the chart is the shape of politics unconsciously, and that's the norm. The tricky thing with talking about something as vague as ideas, trying to plot out the way different ideas relate to each other along various axes, according to spectrums and all that, is that 
because there's no physical object there, you can create so many different comprehensible pictures of how to best categorize these ideas, how to delineate the spectra, which spectra are most relevant, that make sense in and of themselves. And so the people that they make sense to will get into arguments with each other. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. Left and right truly mean this. No, they truly mean that. And they're arguing over angels dancing on the head of a pin acting like there's an objective answer to this question and that it's not an interpretation question being imposed by competing interests and goals and visions and values for how to do it and that sort of thing. So for example, we want to create a society where it's taken for granted that everybody should be provided with a basic decent living so that they have the opportunity to live a full and fulfilling life. And we have particular ideas about what that would look like and how to get there. And so I think some versions of political categorization are more beneficial towards those ends than other versions of political categorization. And I think that's how most people make the decisions on what map of politics they're advocating for, which map of politics they really believe is the real map that matches the real physical territory. Yeah, the real politique of political charts is interesting. And one that comes to mind for me, there's a two-pole single-line chart, like a left-right chart, one spectrum. Where do you fall? One side is agreeing with me on everything, the person who made the graph, and the other side is barbarism. And I'll just throw in pedophilia. <laughs> on a scale of agreeing with me to pedophilia, where do you fit? Uh, I think I'm on agreeing with you. Like, I'm probably right overlapping yeah, like with your dot. At the very least, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Close, if not exact. And I think the same for most people listening. Well, that seems like a really useful way to objectively measure the shape of politics. If you want to be a tyrant leader who is using a political chart to create a false idea of consensus, that's a great way to do it. Just label the second one pedophilia and you're good to go. Yeah. And it really does end up the way that we commonly talk about politics is if it's a single line and then group all these things together on one or the other side. It's This is the reason why people do that all the time. They're like, oh, the leftists are the pedophiles. They're trying to be like, no, your team. I know there's only two teams. Mm -hmm. Pedophiles go on that side. And the left's like, no, pedophiles go on your side. You're the ones with the... Look at Roy <laughs> Moore. Look at you guys yeah. are reintroducing child marriage laws. You're doing blah, blah. And they're like, the person who made cuties is a leftist. Netflix is a leftist corporation run by Marxists. And, <laughs> and then like, yeah, we're just often nowhere land. Yeah, having infinitely long debates about literally nothing. It's like debates about debates about debates about debates. Once you start getting into that shit, if I'm here to defend the left, like what that means to me and what that means to you as someone I'm arguing with is going to obviously be really different. Even within the left, we have all these sort of different ideas of the left. And then ultimately, the end of the day, to think in a simplistic binary of either left or right, or let's be a little nuanced, left, right, or center. There's three options, three places you can be. You run into leftists saying like, oh, that person's not a leftist because they think this and that excludes them from the left. And it's so weird because the left refers to in between 33 and 50 percent of all people. Well, it's kind of like the chart you just laid out with agreeing with me on one end and barbarism on the other end. But it's like agreeing with me equals left. And it's not so much a spectrum as a binary state where you can either be on the one end with me or on the other end with them. Yeah, it's not a spectrum. It's just two checkboxes. You have to erase one check to put in the other. 
a single non-consistent idea puts you on the other side. Like leftists don't think that. Everything else you believe is fine and you would be on the left, but you're not. So now you're binary flipped into the other side of non-left. Or like acting that way, but if you're pressed on it, you'd be like, oh no, technically, I mean, they were sort of hugging it and this pushed them over the edge on the spectrum or something, you know? Like- oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we have different mental models for different situations. I think left and non-left is a very real mental model that a lot of people have, but I don't think it's a model that anyone has as their only one and they actually don't believe there's a spectrum. Like, no, they'd be like, they're a liberal, probably have all kinds of spectrums in their heads. But like one of the mental models is left versus not left. If I can take a soapbox for a second, I identify with the left. I look back at the history of the development of the left. The French Revolution is the place we get the idea of left versus right. The left was the common people sitting in the assembly. The right was the aristocrats, the powerful. That divide at the heart of our conception of this speaks to me in a way of like, I'm with the people. It's wrong to side with the aristocrats to the greatest degree that we can dissolve all forms of actually existing aristocracy, the better. But it's an important but. People who identify as the left or are actually real bona fide leftists, that you can't really argue they're not a leftist. People like that make mistakes. They're wrong about things. They carry deeply incorrect views that need to be argued with as seriously as you'd argue with anything. But they are legitimately on the left, at least by some metric. I don't think the two checkbox model is really going to help us here. I'm not sure that any of these are really that helpful overall. But at the very least, I think it's important to recognize that politics isn't a spectrum from agreeing with me to barbarism and however you want to describe that, whether that's left to right or whatever, libertarian to authoritarian, whatever. There's a a bunch of different ways that people say, I am the correct right center of politics. I'm on one side of the spectrum and then everything else is the opposite side of the spectrum. I most commonly run into that through leftist spheres and people talking about it that way in my communities. But yeah, straight up, leftists can be wrong. Leftists are often wrong. Leftists are probably mostly wrong about most things, just by the metrics of how rare it is to be totally right. But I'm a leftist. I identify with the left. Welcome back to another Wrong Town History Learning Moment. The year is 1512, and the popular understanding of politics is that it's two big buckets, good bucket and bad bucket. And a brave pioneer, Artemis van der Rong, proposes a bold theory that changes the world forever. The theory itself was simple. Politics is not just two buckets, it's a line. And it's not only a line, it's a line with infinite points along the line between good and bad. Essentially, he was proposing the first political gradient. You have to understand how revolutionary this was at the time. The idea that there could be infinite points on a single line rather than just two points floating in space next to each other was the equivalent of suggesting that dogs could be president. Artemis van der Rohe faced incredible amounts of scorn. He was rejected, humiliated, laughed out of the academy. But he doggedly stuck to his ideas and never wavered for his entire life on his view that politics could be more than just two buckets. It was very easy to stay committed his whole life because he unfortunately did not live much longer. He was arrested for seditious conspiracy, put into the bad bucket, and sent to jail where he shortly after died of jail-related flu. On the day that he died, thousands of people celebrated in the streets with the slogan, 
another bad one bites the dust. And the day of his death was made a holiday. Little did they know that generations later, his words would inspire a new generation of chartographers to think even beyond the line. And that holiday would eventually be retroactively turned into a celebration of the man, Political Gradient Day. And the political order that deprived him of life and liberty pretended to always be on his side and that he was never tortured and persecuted by the society. The end. Thanks for listening. That was another Wrong Town History Storytime moment from our heritage. What do you think was the first political chart you ran into? I don't remember, but what I imagine it looked like was a line and it says liberal on one end and conservative on the other end. Mm. And then like you could be super liberal. <laughs> the most liberal of all. When you get completely to the end of the liberal someone, line. Someone who thinks the government should just pay for everything. You know, the government does so many things on the liberal end and on the conservative end. The government would be very fiscally responsible. People would like religion. Maybe there would be no abortions. And, you know, you can go to one side or the other, but like all the best people kind of cluster towards the middle. The, I know I'm getting into wisdom surrounding the chart and not necessarily the chart, but... Uh, the wisdom that was passed on to you when you were young. Yeah. Which is that yeah. aim towards the middle of the chart, because if you get too conservative or too liberal, bad things happen. Yeah. <laughs> I do even remember, I guess it'd be early high school, something like that, middle school, being shown the horseshoe graph with communism and Nazism hugging each other at the bottom where the far ends of the conservative line and the liberal line meet. When you get so, so liberal that you turn into a Nazi-style communist. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I was explained horseshoe theory as well. Like, oh, these are like the little branches on the end that we never really talk about. Communism and fascism. And like, they're actually like in some ways more similar to each other than different. I definitely learned that in school, if not visually as a horseshoe, that idea. Yeah, I remember that stuff, like engaging heavily in leftist politics in the year 2020 and over time and stuff. There's a bunch of things that obviously stick out as really weird, odd, misleading about these charts that we were <laughs> exposed to as fairly young people. And I think the other major thing I learned was that you can split left right into axes of social or economic, and that some people, some brave, enlightened few, were actually economically conservative while being socially liberal. It's kind of like the best of both worlds. Yeah, the best of both worlds. No, no, I'm a cool guy. I support legalizing weed and gay rights, but don't worry, I'm not going to spend too much money doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and like still Facebook, when they had political views, you had the choice to say liberal or very liberal. There was never socialist, communist, anarchist, right. or even like your social democrat or all the nuances within all these things, anarcho-syndicalist, all this sort of stuff that matters deeply to me because I'm strange compared to the norm. But in Facebook terms, it was like, are you a moderate, conservative, very conservative, liberal, or very liberal. It's also like that on OkCupid. Yeah, it's one line, and there's like five points along the line. <laughs> five checkboxes. You can only check one. You have to erase all the others to pick it. That's the political spectrum. The only thing I like about those is making certain leftists have to check the very liberal box. It's rude of me to enjoy it. but Yeah, there is something really funny about taking someone who deeply cares about political leftist values, who has like a pretty good political education and stuff, and they really want to express themselves and then put them in a circumstance <laughs> where... <laughs> 
where in order to express themselves as best as they can within that circumstance, they have to say, I am very the type of politics I don't like. I'm like them except more so. This all connects into the issue of like literalism and how we take these terms or these graphs over seriously sometimes. Because for me, I find it kind of whimsical. I'm like, oh, I'm forced to identify as very liberal right now. But obviously, in another context, I wouldn't do that because I don't identify with the political history of liberalism the way that I identify. You can put liberalism on the opposite side of the spectrum from leftism. Like economically, if you call liberalism capitalism, good historical argument to just kind of equate those two. Leftism is basically the complete opposite of the spectrum of liberalism. So on some other thing, you'd be like, yeah, I'm as far away from that as possible. And if you wanted to sort of have a will to power through the creation of a political chart from a communist perspective, you would do that. You would say, are you very communist, a little bit communist, moderate, a little bit liberal, or very liberal? Yeah, and conservatives <laughs> are all liberal anyway because they believe in capitalism. They so believe they, in free they, markets, yeah. Yeah, they'd go on that end. It makes just as much sense as the one that Facebook and stuff has. If you were going to make it really simple, the most accurate one, if you're going to reduce it to five points, would be like very leftist, center left, liberal, center right, very right. Yeah. Putting liberalism as the center is better than those other two. It almost gives you like a three pointed thing. And then you're sort of getting to the point where I'm like, the fidelity to reality there is meeting some thresholds that weren't previously met. But it just goes to show that the tech whizzes in Silicon Valley, when they're setting up concepts of politics, they consider the center to be halfway between liberals and conservatives. Yeah, that's the other way to think about it is that it's not that they're mistaking all communists and stuff for just being like an example of something that's very liberal. They're just explicitly making the political chart from the center to the far right, asserting that as reality. Just thinking again about my development of understanding political charts, going from what I described learning in school to graduating from school to being very online as like the next stage of my political development. And at that point, you're going to encounter, <laughs> yeah, the political chart in my head became like fused to that square that we talked about at the beginning, has authoritarian at the top, libertarian at the bottom economically right versus economically left on the horizontal axis. Lib left is green, authoritarian left is red, uh, I forget. Blue and yellow. So the, Isn't one of them purple? It might be the top right one's purple. I'm colorblind, but I'm pretty sure it's blue and yellow. Oh yeah, authoritarian right is blue, libertarian right. There's yellows and purples on Google images. We really just got down to the bottom of what color is libertarian <laughs> right economics. When you go from a single metric, left versus right, in order to make sense of the world on a left-right metric like that, you need to introduce all these weird implications and assumptions into it. Like, for example, that it's shaped like a horseshoe and the far ends get these secondary qualities. If you get at the very end, all of a sudden, these like demented types of behavior show up. Like any single spectrum, if we want it to embody all of politics, is going to carry all these weird implications to it. Like the example we gave before of the left and the right accusing each other of being pedophile enablers or accusing each other of being authoritarian, Nazis, communists, whatever. When you add that second spectrum, the up and down, the authoritarian versus libertarian, it's like a massive additional amount of wisdom compared to the original one. It's actually really quite stark how much more depth a quad compass has over a single line. There's so much more ability to describe the world through adding those extra axes 
you can now talk about ways in which you're similar to some people, but very different from them in other ways. So it's like, oh, we're both on the left, but we have very different ideas about how power should be distributed in a left-wing society. Yeah, it just gives you more resolution to discuss things. But you still end up lumping a lot. Because like even, okay, you've added the authoritarian libertarian spectrum to it. So that allows you to kind of not superimpose that onto the left-right spectrum, which is something that some right-wing libertarian people do where they equate libertarianism with right-wingness and so fascism and communism are on the same end of the political yeah, spectrum yeah, no, on I've the left-wing end of the political spectrum that's one of those agreeing with me versus barbarism graphs that you see in the <laughs> wild which is like oh it's good libertarian minimum government the smaller government the yeah. less anarchy is over here anarchy libertarianism i'm libertarian it's close to anarchy but i don't go that far and then on the other side you get nazis and stalin right next to each other at the end you have like the little nazi logo and the little communist yeah. logo at the end <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> and you're like oh biden's actually pretty close to that side compared to <laughs> he's close to nazi and marxist <laughs> yeah well when your political chart runs from ancaps on one side to statists on the other biden is pretty close to the communists and the nazis on one end but even if you separate that out and authoritarianism is this up down line what libertarian means to people on the left and what it means to people on the right is actually pretty different. Often this gets talked about in terms of negative liberty and positive liberty, where libertarian right is about just leave me alone, and libertarian left is about let's work together to create the preconditions for the most amount of freedom. And it also shows up in like attitudes towards democracy, where on the libertarian left, there's often a lot of respect for democracy. And on the libertarian right, democracy is often framed as kind of like mob rule or like the majority imposing their will on the minority. You have like Ayn Rand and the individual is the world's smallest minority. They kind of see each individual as a sovereign who should be able to make whatever decisions they want and democratic decisions being made together can often be an imposition on that. And when you get to the anarchists, the people who call themselves anarcho-capitalists often envision worlds in which we don't need democracy at all because it's been replaced with individuals merely making rational choices for themselves in the marketplace. Whereas libertarian leftists, anarchists on the left, usually envision highly democratic societies where we are always making decisions together in various ways. So that was, in a sense, maybe kind of the first type of idiocy that came out of the political compass. It started making people think that directly democratic people, like the left libertarian stuff, like the community libertarian sort of stuff, like libertarian in the original sense of the word, if you want to get technical, the origin of the term libertarian originally referred to something closer to libertarian socialism or anarchy. Yes. But it was eventually co-opted by right strains of libertarianism and they obviously have more money to put out popular conceptions about things because they're all little kings in their little kingdoms i think in practice over the last probably 15 years or so that i've seen this play out on the internet is like the early phase was everyone's libertarian and you go in the bbs forums everyone's doing the political compass and it's like how left versus right are you on the libertarian half of it and then you have like the one guy in the forum who's like really nice but he's like super christian and stuff he uses like certain emojis or whatever you know those people and 
back in the day and he's up in the auth right and you're like oh you know jimmy he's a hardcore catholic supremacist but he's really sweet that's the way bbs is used to be for the young folks but it was really like that it was like all libertarian like across the board libertarian left oh libertarian left 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 oh i was more libertarian left than you haha so the first idiocy was that oh us libertarians aren't so different maybe we should team up against the sort of nazi communists and you wouldn't see the same thing on the top like obviously communists and nazis are so apart that you wouldn't expect like, oh, we're not so different. We just need to crush the individualists. But the second idiocy was really surprising to me. And I think is the most active idiocy to this day. Sorry to say. It was people saying, I am authoritarian. I want to be authoritarian because I want to differentiate myself from the anarchists. I want to differentiate myself from the green quadrant. I'm a communist. So I want to be in the red quadrant as if it's two different checkboxes that they can only pick one, they can only pick one quadrant, they want the cool quadrant. And as a result, we have young people on the internet, some old people saying like, I'm an authoritarian. I think what it does is it contributes to people asserting values that they don't actually have based on a bad map. And originally it was sort of intended, I think, by the guy who made it to be a sort of criticism of authoritarianism. So look, we're all united against the top half of the graph. Like we've all got these libertarian sentiments. We all yeah, think people that the drug say that the test itself tends to produce libertarian. Like more people test into the lower quadrants just based on kind of the bias of the test itself. Well, yeah, and the things that drive people to the top half because of the way the questions are set up, no matter what side of the left-right spectrum you're on, you're moving up and down on the same questions. Some of the things that move you higher up on the authoritarian side of the graph are incompatible fundamentally with the theory of communism and socialism. It creates that sort of like libertarian bias. So it creates this cultural bubble of resisting the bias of the chart in a way that creates this weird second option bias. People not wanting to be libertarians has made them identify with things that the chart was set up in a way to really emphasize these are wrong. Even though the majority of people who identify as authoritarian leftists aren't actually authoritarian in meaningful ways, the things that meaningfully define authoritarianism in terms of critiques of authoritarianism, like Hannah Arendt or others, are things that they would not want to co-sign. I think democracy versus authoritarianism is a more useful metric than libertarian versus authoritarian. Like people who identify as authoritarian, it's not that they did the compass and found objectively they're in the top left red quadrant. So they think the whole thing's kind of bullshit and they don't like libertarianism. What I see a lot more than people like identifying as authoritarian leftists is people identifying others who they disagree with as authoritarian leftists for all kinds of things, like speaking fondly of the USSR or China or, you know, less commonly North Korea, identifying as a Marxist-Leninist, identifying as a Marxist, vanguard parties and stuff like that that has deep history in the left. All kinds of things can get you placed into the authoritarian left categorization. And I think often for good, like I'm not saying I've never done that. I do that all the time. I agree with you that I think the entire chart was designed partially as like a critique of those kind of politics. And like, I see it playing out in the discourse that way. I see it as in some sense, a really useful recruiting tool for libertarian leftists and anarchist leftists. Do you want to be with the authoritarians or do you want to be with the people who aren't trying to crush your liberty? Leftists often talk about like a communist anarchist divide in a lot of ways that just kind of got superimposed onto this spectrum with like, quote unquote, anarchists calling quote unquote, communist authoritarians. 
I'm not trying to discount that some people are second option bias driven to identifying with authoritarian ideas specifically. I guess I don't know how serious those people are being a lot of the time. They just think that this line shouldn't exist as a spectrum at all, and that the idea of authoritarianism is used to make leftists ineffective by getting them not to identify with doing things that are actually effective. Yeah, and I think when it comes to seeing people identify as authoritarian, for me, it's more of a pet peeve, but also... I don't know, when I see the graph like where someone is superimposed on the existing political compass, the left versus right thing stays the same, but then instead of authoritarian versus libertarian, it's how bad do you want it? And the top is you want it a lot, and the bottom is you don't want it at all, implying that democratic, decentralized, leftist forms of organizing are not serious or not interested in taking care of people, making a better world and stuff. Like when I see that, sometimes it really gets under my skin because maybe in a way they're just kidding, but oh, I don't I've talked to these people. They <laughs> I've never actually seen someone do that. Like how bad you want it or like ineffective to effectiveness. Like mm. we identify as effective leftists. That's a good counter assertion of a new map or whatever to. Yeah. Well, and that one is interesting too, because it's like a new assertion on the old map. It's not saying get rid of the previous yeah, stuff yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not just, it's just reframing it because if you reframe it as just a plain new like obviously no one's going to pick the ineffective side in any case not true it's not useful it's giving cover to bad shit and i think that's a bad thing i don't want to get too deep on this side note about the second option bias and how this relates and stuff but i think there's really really good critiques when people are talking about authoritarianism bureaucracy lack of accountability lack of democracy that stuff's criticized for good reason. I don't think people should identify with those things that are criticized. And maybe they don't think they're identifying with that because the political spectrum gets to be everyone's little Rorschach test and we all get to see whatever we want onto it. And like when I see people say like, I'm authoritarian, I'm like, why are you saying that you would suppress the voices of workers from having a say in their own workplace? Like, what does that have to do with communism? It's literally the opposite of communism. Yeah, they, no, they'd be like, well, you know, all these states are democratic, are communist. It's the opposite of what you're saying. Or it or, will or, be, but it has to go through a phase first. In the historical context, they tried it, but it didn't work. There's a lot of muddled arguments around this. It like, depends who you talk to on, yeah. on this stuff. But my ultimate point is that I blame the compass for all this bullshit. Yeah, I think... <laughs> It is the compass's fault, but also I don't know if it would be better without the compass. Like maybe there's a perfect political compass out there that would meet all the needs and point people on the perfect right path. The problems with maps not matching the political territory because the shape of politics doesn't have an actual shape. It's like the sound of the color blue. Yeah, exactly. So the problem of our maps not matching that is eternal and there will always be negative side effects towards making any map. Yeah, I think a lot of the interesting, weird problems of the left and discourse that we see today are things that realistically predate the political compass and <laughs> like some of the, just the weird ways that people act around politics and partisanship and stuff. Oh, like, these yeah, are yeah, deep yeah. felt, long-standing issues. And yeah, I meant the specific little nerdy debates about the compass itself, where the fault of the compass, not the deeper political disagreements. I think those have to do with material reality more so than our charts. Often. Yeah. And I guess whatever shape of compass is popularized in the early 2000s and whatever timeline, we find some weird ways to argue about it over seemingly finicky details that are quite important to all of us. Welcome back, folks, to Chart Those Boys. Another episode, another chart. 
people have been clamoring. They've been saying, wrong boys, we want to see you charted. Chart yourselves. I want to understand politically where you fit and what you are fundamentally in terms of various grids related to politics. These have been deafening calls and we are now going to be listening to them and responding with the new bit, Chart Those Boys. So for our first chart today, I believe we've got something called the five-dimensional political compass. We've talked about the two-dimensional political compass. So just imagine if you added a third dimension to turn it into a cube, kind of the z-axis going through the page perpendicular towards you. And then imagine two more dimensions on top of that, expanding into dimensions that we as three-dimensional beings don't and can't experience. And we'll chart ourselves along those five dimensions. Understanding that the one-dimensional compass was insufficient, the two-dimensional compass was better but still insufficient, and the three-dimensional compass would presumably be even better than that, it only makes sense to go as high as you possibly can, hundreds, maybe thousands of dimensions. But these chart makers have picked just five, which some would say is not enough, but it's bigger than the human mind can conceive as a 3D shape. So that is something I'd put in the in favor column. Yeah, absolutely. And some people say, oh, you can just map them out as five individual lines. That's the simplest way. Don't have to imagine five dimensions all perpendicular to one another. To them, I say, if you want to think about it in terms of lines, go ahead. Yeah, maybe it's simpler and easier to think of things in terms of five lines, but then you're not grasping the real true shape of actual politics. And that's your loss. Which is a cube floating above a two-dimensional thing. That's how you get five dimensions and imagining. You could also imagine a four-dimensional cube over time. Just an idea. So we took this five political compass test, and according to the test, I'm a communist, anti-government, interventionist, bleeding heart libertine. Oh, I got really close. One of the great things about the five-dimensional compass is instead of trying to map you in some sort of physical space, it just gives you percentage scores and a really fancy, weird name. Yeah, I love the big, long name. I'm a communist, multilateralist, bleeding heart libertine, and I think the multilateralist came from giving nuanced answers on different types of foreign policy questions. That makes sense. I was just imagining I was President Bernie, you know, and I'm like, there's a threat to liberty. Well, maybe I would be involved in that. I don't know. I need to be sure. It depends. So I had on the collectivism axis, the first axis, economic intervention, whether the state should intervene in the economy. I had a 100% collectivism score. I think that's what gets you the communist label. Yeah, I also got 100% on collectivism. But just to critique the structure of this, I don't think I gave answers sufficient to say that I want the state to intervene in the economy 100% to redistribute. They just ask basic questions, like should people get food? And I don't remember all yeah, the questions Yeah, does the government anymore. have the right to tax people? Yeah. So I guess what it's saying is it's 100% true that we're down for some degree of economic collectivism and redistribution. I don't really feel like I've answered the gradient questions that would give me a full 100, although I think I may get that if I tried. I self-identify as 94%. Yeah, I, honestly, I see more 94, me, 96, 97 and that tension is part of what makes the show so dynamic <laughs> next axis authoritarianism i got minus 17 percent you can get a minus yes you can get all the way to minus 100 zero is centrist damn i feel like such an authoritarian piece of shit i got zero zero percent <laughs> zero percent authoritarianism oh you're zero percent authoritarian i don't know if I can that means you're as bad as you. a literal nazi <laughs> <laughs> 
it says negative percentages indicate opposition to state power. So you're not authoritarian, but you don't oppose state power. I think that's just not true about you, but that's what the score says. I only oppose it 17%, I guess. So authoritarianism refers to state power to control the actions of individuals to protect them from harming others or themselves and to establish the will of the majority over society. So 0% score means that I answered in a very balanced way. Yeah. What I was basically saying is in some cases, the state should have some of the authority to prevent people from doing things that are harmful. Yeah. The way that they phrase it here, I'm like, I'm an authoritarian. I believe in state power controlling the actions of individuals sometimes to prevent them from harming others or themselves. Like I literally agree with doing that in a society where the state exists. Yeah. I think this is a good critique of this five dimensional thing and how it's wrong in the way that they write it is I don't feel like. I answered any questions that differentiated between qualitatively different types of exercise of power, which I think is fundamental to my politics, which is that it's good to do good things and it's bad to do bad things. That might sound trite, but it's actually really important. (laughs) Yeah. Like you shouldn't stop people from getting married to each other. Stopping people from getting married to each other, I think would be more your liberalism score, which is the acceptance of historically illegal or immoral social practices or customs. So like interracial marriage or gay marriage, things like that would probably fit more into that. I got 83% a liberal, so almost 100. I got 83% a liberal too. I think that's what made us both libertines. Is that what you had, libertine at the end? Yeah. When liberalism means acceptance of illegal or immoral social practices or customs, a lot of the times I'm a liberal, you know? I even can vibe with the spectrum of, say, like liberalism as permissiveness around what is sometimes perceived as social harm, what is recognized by the liberal as not. Like, for example, an individual's personal drug use is not a social harm as an example of that. But defining it by its historical illegality, it's a way of defining liberalism by historical powers of anti-liberalisms rather than the sort of positive platform of liberalism, which I think under this framework would be people should be free to do things that don't harm others. We shouldn't have an excessively policed social realm, et cetera, et cetera, which I think is more of a positive value than something that's defined by past orders, which tried to repress this. Maybe it's a niche beef to have about that particular one, but I think the way that it's structured philosophically. It is weird. Yeah. Now that you pointed out on internationalism, I got 33%. I got 67% on internationalism. So that was what made me an interventionist, I think. That's what made me a multilateralist. What does that word mean? Multilateral trade agreements? like I think it means like working from multiple points of power. Here's my actual thoughts. I don't know how it filtered through the questions. And my actual thoughts is that when it comes to multiple world powers, there is a responsibility in the world to intervene in something like the Holocaust. I don't think there's any argument that you shouldn't intervene in the Holocaust if you have the opportunity. It's just that yeah. level of moral and ethical devastation is so enormous. But it's also something that you shouldn't seek to do by yourself without partnerships, will of the community, and democratic engagement in that process. Yeah, that makes sense. Internationalism refers to the political involvement in other nations, global affairs, either via war, treaty, or international organizations. Negative percentages indicate isolationist beliefs. You could be 100% an internationalist because you love war or because you love treaties. Same thing. As long as you want to deal with people outside of your country at all, (laughs) you're an internationalist. That's another really simple binary political chart that floats around in like libertarian world. It's the checkbox mentality of like erase national sovereignty, check internationalism. It means you want like a global government. All these things are just the same in libertarian Ron Paul world. And then finally, the fifth dimension, 
the tribalism score, they call it. I got minus 100%. I also got minus 100%. (laughs) Why we're bleeding hearts. Negative percentages indicate opposition to national or ethnic identity and oriented towards pan-humanism. That's me. I like that term, pan-humanism. Yeah, and I'd say generally that more or less is close enough for me. Weird, like opposition to ethnic identity, like not necessarily, but opposition to being super weird about it. I'm I'm not opposed <laughs> like, to like Ukrainian people doing Ukrainian dances or something yeah, like yeah, that. Exactly. You know? like, not... <laughs> or being like, I identify with my Ukrainian heritage or whatever it but is. I would be against Ukrainian people coming up with some sort of symbol that means that they're racially superior or something, you know, like yeah. that type of shit would be pretty wildly bad. So even when you get up to five dimensions, now five dimensions is a lot more than one dimensions, which is what the average person probably thinks in. It's just a one-dimensional political compass. But even up to five dimensions, you still have all these weird little implications and these corners of thought. Yeah, you're lumping stuff together that doesn't need to belong together on one spectrum, like war and treaties on one end. Yeah, the clear biases of the author of it. I get sort of an idea of the type of guy who made this from the phrase acceptance of historically illegal or immoral social practices it's that guy for sure you know what i'm talking about (laughs) yeah oh man if we could psychoanalyze the guy based on all the questions that would be a whole nother sketch and chart (laughs) yeah we should come up with a political chart that just psychoanalyzes the creators of other political charts (laughs) that we find (laughs) uh yeah next time what quadrant are you in that about wraps up charting the boys. We'll yeah, see. Boys you. have been charted. Boys Five been- dimensions. Welcome back to another Wrong Town History Learning Moment. Today's story is William the Terrible, the man who drove Wrong Town into a 10 day madness. The thing you got to understand about Wrongtown at this time was everyone had to take a mandatory placement test onto a political chart. There's a y-axis and an x-axis, not unlike a political compass, but with different values on it. And it was sort of believed by everyone that how you place on that test is who you are. People just took it for granted. The chart and reality were the exact same thing. The way society was set up, the results on your test determined your job and therefore your income, just overall your place in society. William the Terrible, spiteful little bastard he was, wasn't enough to just get his test, go home and accept it, accept the values you've been assigned. No, not William the Terrible. What he said was, in addition to the y-axis, and the x-axis, maybe charts go further. A third axis, a z-axis, making not just a plot of a quad, but a cube made of eight smaller cubes. The consequences were disastrous. People all around society really took to the idea that there could be a third axis and the way that it increased the complexity of politics seemed revelatory at first. Almost immediately, debates began about what the third axis might represent. The first two were firmly codified by society. Everybody knew what the first two axes were. But that third one, what could it mean? Well, that turned out to be a question that tore Wrongtown apart. For 10 long days of madness, the people of Wrongtown cast down their tools and stopped working, cast down their toys 
and stopped playing, and committed to an all-out war of all against all over the fundamental debate of what the Z-axis could stand for. It eventually got to the point where William the Terrible and his legion of people who read the headline but not the article stormed the office building of a beloved slave master and stole their laptop. In order to ensure society never fell into this sort of fervor again, the government clamped down on any and all charts that didn't meet their rigorous two-axis with specific label standards. And for whipping this crowd into a frenzy through his proposed third axis and the theft of that beloved laptop, William the Terrible was sentenced to death. The day William the Terrible was executed was marked as a grim holiday of reminder of the terrible human cost that can come from thinking outside the one true chart. It's a special day marked each and every year to sit down and think inside that chart. Think inside it long and think inside it deep and believe it. Believe it's true. That's what that holiday is about. It makes me proud to live in Wrongtown, just to think about it. It's just so beautiful. Wrongtown history. Thank you. That was another Wrongtown history learning moment. I've got this kind of fascination with the biases of different political charts and the ways that the people who make the charts make their ideas known through the way the questions are asked, the way the spectrums are set up and stuff like that. And it brings to mind the thought of, could you have an objective one or a more objective one, something that is more reflective of reality without creating the weird implications that come up when you create a spectrum. Like I'd call it the spectrum problem. If you look at left to right, if you're comparing, say, market communists versus council communists versus communalists, who's more left than who? There's all these weird implications that come up when you set up a spectrum like that. So is it possible to create spectrums in political charts that aren't dense with these weird implications, no. with these biases as a creator? Like, no. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> I mean, we should give it a shot for sure. Maybe on something like hyper, hyper specific, you could make a spectrum that works. But like for the most part, the real world and like moral political positions, it's just too complicated to put them on a line from each other with gradations in between. Like, I think the spectrum form lends itself to not being able to match objective reality for politics. And the only reason we use it is because there's no better one. Yeah, I mean, the mind privileges visual information. So if you can make your political point in the form of a chart, there is good reason to think that it would stick more. Makes sense. I love charts, despite all this. Yeah. So satisfying. So I want to acknowledge the usual inherent inadequacy of charts, but I want to sort of assert a possibility of a more scientific or unbiased way of charting, even something as abstract as politics. I think it's possible if we talk through it together, we use our ethical sense, and we use our sense of logic and rationality in groups. I think we can make some really great charts that work really well for what we want to do. But even as you say, using our sense of ethics, like exactly, we're using our sense of ethics that according to other people would be our bias. There's different scales of like, quote unquote, objectivity versus subjectivity. So I think you're right to say that we'll be able to make graphs that are useful to us towards certain things. And match how we see the world better. I think it is possible to approach political chart making 
with the sincere intention in a group would be more effective than as an individual to account for biases. And there's certain base level biases, like we're all mammals. We have all these things in common. Like we're obviously biased and centered in our position in some way. But if the purpose of the chart from its design is to help people have an understanding of politics that's rooted on material differences and how things interrelate to each other in a real significant way that maps to the way that people actually think, talk and act, et cetera, that you can get better and better at doing that over time in a way that isn't just purely rooted in me wanting to express my certain values through it, but to express the spectrum of human values as they exist. I think we can definitely get closer to matching the types of values that exist out there in the world. And I would never say that it's just purely about jockeying for position or advocating for values. But when I hear the word objective, I hear the ability to remove values from it and that you can just not deal with that, that people could create this chart that perfectly matches the world. And also, I think that like the best way to describe values out there in the world isn't through spectrums. I don't think that's how values exist. They exist in people's heads, in language, in their understandings and narratives about the world. And it's just way more complicated than two far away dots and like the gradient between them. Like, I think that's a useful way of describing things for sure, but I don't think it's a way that ever lends itself to just describing reality without making editorial choices. Maybe it doesn't need to be spectrum. Like maybe it could be a mixture between a variety of mapping mechanisms, say like check boxes, color, size, shapes, curves. You could have bizarre shapes, shapes that are non-Euclidean. When we exhaust all of our options there, we gotta be able to- If you mapped out a bunch of different values to different colors, you could maybe like find out what your color is by like adding different amounts of them or something. I don't know. But then colorblind people like you maybe couldn't use the political chart as effectively. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's also probably worth asserting from like a philosophical political perspective, ecological politics aren't literally the color green. It might be useful to sort of like have an association between a color and a politics for good reasons or bad reasons, political parties, organizations. But if we have a color spectrum based thing, then we're going to create these other weird assumptions. Like when you look up the sky, people are going to see conservatism. Right. Part of the issue is that there's a spectrum problem of all these spectrums have their weird implications. And then they, all the weird implications play against each other. And it creates this sort of weird, unintelligible system if you really think it through. But are there spectrums so small we could make that they are meaningful, that they do reflect how people feel in relation to each other without any complexity. Like one side of the spectrum is 0% tax and the other one's 100% tax. How much tax do you want? Yeah, it's exactly how tax policy works. All arguments are just like, raise the number up, the one number. I think all people from the homeless to the richest in the world should be taxed 90%. Peanut gallery all you want, but (laughs) at the very least, we're not doing left versus right. We're not doing something on the scale of all politics down to two points. Sure. We're focusing on at least one thing and being like, do you tend to want the most taxes possible or the least taxes possible? You can measure that one thing. And I think that's a fairly accurate view of that one question, but there's so many other relevant questions, like what kind of taxes do you want? Do you want sales taxes? Do you want VAT taxes? Let's set up a second spectrum, no problem. The spectrum between sales tax, VAT tax, income tax, wealth tax, land value tax, and some other kind of tax. Absolutely. Wealth tax on (laughs) one end. 
<laughs> where does gasoline taxes fit on that? And where do tariffs fit on this? Are they not um, taxes? Gas taxes is... It's a type of sales cent- tax. Yeah, I'd say it's center-leaning wealth tax. <laughs> On a scale from wealth tax to value-added tax. The two opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Income tax is three quarters to one of the sides, but I won't tell you which. (laughs) Could be either. Who knows? Okay, so maybe we need three spectrums. we got a little income tax cube. Can we do it? The amount of tax, is it progressive or not? And the qualitative one, where each one arbitrarily represents... (laughs) Maybe just a series of checkboxes. Yes, this kind of tax and not. But what proportion... Of them in relation to each other is important too. So yeah, that's true. So I want the most possible land value tax, the most possible income tax, but and the a least moderate po- amount of sales tax, and the least possible personal income tax, or the least possible baby supplies tax. That's pretty good for taxes. I think we nailed it as good as it could be nailed. Yeah, all we had to do was abolish the spectrum form. And, and I've been, <laughs> yeah, I've been arguing against objectivity, but I do think that's a more objective measure of what kind of taxes people like than like stupid crayon drawing of a plane that says taxes yes at the bottom high taxes are at the top of the stupid drawing get it right (laughs) yeah the plane is flying towards high taxes you don't get it it's impressionistic but it's a type of political chart Um, where do plane go and the answer tells you how much taxes you want what if for our little quiz here you just answered a series of detailed policy questions about different taxation systems and including some meta-ethical questions about taxation as a construct and then from that it will render you some sort of picture of a plane oh yeah the plane is a great visualization idea for the end absolutely so i got red plane red plane pointing this many degrees in this direction lift amount what's the wingspan there's all kinds of stuff on the mm-hmm. plane that and could... by interpreting all of that you can read people's tax policies oh back. you're a blue plane short wingspan pointed up huh i'm more of a green plane long wingspan pointed horizontal oh we got the one conservative guy on the forum he posted a picture of a helicopter god bless him oh god <laughs> Welcome back to Chart Those Boys. The section of the show where the wrong boys themselves get placed into a chart. Imagine the chart and little our faces on the chart representing where we are. If you know what our faces look like, that is. Maybe we're just voices to you. It's true. We don't put our faces front and center on the website and stuff usually. It's not because we're not beautiful. It's out there. It's available though. We're just humble guys. (laughs) Humble guys being put onto charts by ourselves. So this time we did the left values test. So in some sense, you're like, this is amazing. We're doing a whole test designed for people on the left. So we don't have to deal with all these questions about conservatist ideas or like, are you a fascist or not? Obviously not. We're all on the left here. It's really one of the problems with the political compass or a lot of tests that anytime you're asking someone a question and you're trying to get information about them to differentiate between things on both the left and on the right, there's a bunch of questions that the left might all completely agree on one question and the right has a million different nitpicky versions of it for their own spectrum. And then the same in reverse, like the right all completely agrees. They don't even want to talk about the nuances between council communism, a municipal communalism, and a Marxist-Leninist vanguard party. As far as they're concerned, they're all literally the same thing, the same point on the graph, at the far end with both the Nazis and the communist symbol. Far left, yeah. That lack of correspondence means that by focusing just in on the left, you can get a lot more detail. 
There's seven spectrums and it's only on the left. So we're gonna be able to start getting close to an objective measure of the shape of leftist politics. This is amazing. I was excited. And then we started doing the test and I feel like we both noticed pretty quickly that we were sighing a lot more than we were during the last test. We were pointing out questions to each other that were maybe bothering us a little bit, quite a lot through this test. Well, first of all, it's 72 questions instead of the 30, 30 that we yeah. just did. So it's twice as much. On the last test and on this one, there were a lot of questions that I just had to be like, the way this is phrased, I don't agree with the assumptions behind this question. So I'll just answer it best I can. But for whatever reason, people on the left having different assumptions from me versus political people broadly having different assumptions from me, a little more annoying. Yeah, Sigmund Freud called it the narcissism of small differences. It's the idea that people who are very, very similar to you not doing it quite right really get under your skin in some way and that was definitely the case for not all the questions but maybe one in four of the questions were framed in such a way that i felt like i wasn't able to express what i thought because the binary that it was giving me was a false one or mixing different premises together at once like Trade unions have been corrupted by the ruling class, and that's why trade unions aren't a viable revolutionary strategy. Well, I don't really feel yes or no on that because it's an end question, which has got a therefore in it that seems inappropriate. Yeah, like I think they have been corrupted. I think maybe they're a viable strategy, like even despite that, maybe they're not a viable strategy, but not because they've been corrupted. I don't even know how to parse that into answering it, really. Yeah. I think I said I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I said I agree too, because I don't think that trade unions are the structure to a communist society. And a lot of the phrasing of these questions is like, the way this is going to happen is like this. And I can't read a question like that and say either yes or no, because it's too definitive. And I approach politics with the assumption that a lot of things are possible. There's a lot of uncertainties. There's a lot of questions within questions, always. That's how I approach politics. If this graph could summarize my politics, it would tell me that, but it can't because it's written by, I think, probably a group of Marxist-Leninists. Yeah, that was the vibe I got. If I was arguing with the person who made this test, I might toss them into that top left corner. Dirty authoritarians. Probably a wonderful person in other contexts who I would be a friend to. Something I do love about this test is where you have seven spectra that you're ranked on, a deeper fidelity than the five spectrum test. It's only on the left, so you're getting even deeper, theoretically. 72 questions, you should be able to cover a lot of territory. And then it's going to give you a closest match at the end where it summarizes your connection to some sort of broad ideology. Yeah, maybe we can start with the closest match. Because I got democratic socialism. I don't want to start with the closest match because it was bullshit. I got democratic socialism. Socialism too. It is almost the opposite of my theory of change. You don't think you can vote socialism in through liberal democracy the way they describe democratic socialism. What did you want? Eco-anarchism? Eco-anarchism I'd take is more or less accurate. I also take utopian socialism. Utopian socialism is third from the bottom for me, but I would also take that label, meaning what I mean it to mean, not necessarily what they mean. <laughs> often believe the ruling class can be convinced to adopt socialism. That widespread belief that we just have to talk to them and ask nicely that all utopians have. It was one of the first questions I really sighed at because it's an important point, this little point. When you transform society from a stratified class hierarchical society into an egalitarian, democratic, ecological, social society, at no point in that process is the point where you sit down 
with the so-called ruling class and you convince them to adopt socialism by some good arguments. I don't think I've heard that advocated directly except by us in a sketch. And <laughs> yeah, no, but that's we the often o- do that's, ridiculous uh, things. It's often framed as the only alternative to like gunning them down or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's really a sickening dichotomy because if you think about the world to borrow a Marxist term dialectically, that is, it's something that forces interact with each other over time, and that generates different outcomes. If you're thinking about the dissolution of the so-called ruling class in those terms, you don't need to differentiate between convincing a monolithic block that inherently is the ruling class at their core because of their genetics or something, or their class position is so... There was no option to say, it is possible to transform to a much more better utopian society without the need for direct conflict with people that you differentiate in a certain class based on their social position which I think is getting closer to the position of actually existing utopian socialists. Yeah. I just want to quickly run through what the spectra are. Reform versus revolution, scientific versus utopian, central versus decentral, national versus international, party versus union, production versus nature, conservative versus progressive on social policy. So that's a lot, but I hate production versus nature. Like everything I care about in politics involves producing what we need and taking care of nature at the same time. The idea that someone thought, let's put these two things as opposed to each other, it's just so wrong. And like, I get it. I get why, because production has historically been tied to destroying the environment. When you just produce and take whatever you need from the environment without giving back, it's like this productivist ideal. I get it. But the whole point is to undo that connection, to do the opposite thing, to make technologies that are ecological at the same time. There's unfortunately still people on the left and legitimately on the left, much to my chagrin, who would say that productive forces dominating and destroying nature to provide people's basic needs to create communism at the expense of the collapse of ecosystems and the planet that not just gave rise to us but is our home those people still exist i feel like this spectrum exists to give and prims a uh, space the people who say that production and nature are inherently tied are the ones who say we have to scale back all production degrowth i feel like the other half of the and prim thing it's a real position in a sense but not one that people consciously hold anymore oh, at no, least no, that's, that's my not true at all no no you can still find these people like you... who think climate change doesn't exist and we don't need to do anything to fix that they could think variations of climate change being like overstated or the responsibility of it not being on like proletarian nations or the responsibility like there's definitely a real tendency and that was my first thought looking at this was that the primitivists were the shadow being cast by this tendency but then you're looking at it the opposite way like this is the shadow being cast by the inclusion of the primitivists. Uh. Maybe that's a compliment to the people who made the quiz and they're being reflective of these different areas of the left and the ways that they Except could. for us, except for the social ecological. Anyway, please go on. You do run into people who have very chauvinist ideas towards ecological crisis. I mean, especially historically, but even now, unfortunately. I got 68.1% nature and 31.3% production. I got 75% nature, but I think really the answer to this would not be to place these in an immutable tension, but the real question is how do you synthesize, dissolve our existing premises and recreate a new concept of ecological production that's sustainable? That's the real question here, and it's something, unfortunately, this mapping thing cannot 
Yeah, reflect. I feel like a lot of these are actually that way. Like, should we use parties or unions to organize towards social, like both? I got actually 50-50 on that perfectly, which I liked. But like also other things, like I don't think these are just the two yeah. ways. Party versus union is a very like leftist brained attempt at mapping politics because your average political participant in the world wouldn't have a position on that at all. And for people who fall out of either the camp that says a party is necessary or the camp that says unions are necessary, which are both small camps, <laughs> there's no place on the spectrum for you. And that's the majority of people. Progressive conservative social stuff is pretty self-explanatory. It's like a normal one that made its way on there. I got 80.9% progressive. I got 79.4. Very close. I got mostly internationalist, close to 70%. Another one of these things that just really, it's screaming to you. So I got 51.5% utopian, leaning a little utopian over scientific. I, I got 48.5%. So I'm the opposite. So like you're leaning a little scientific, I lean a little utopian. Yeah, the same amount. The odd couple, that's yeah. beautiful. The, <laughs> but the heart of it, scientific and utopian, those actually aren't in contradiction. There's so many of these where it's like, the point of good politics is both of these together. It gets caught up in all these like niche historic beefs, international versus national. There's no one who says there should only be international and no national. People are thinking of nested sets. People are thinking of confederalism. They're thinking of maybe a world government, but there's still going to be state governments and stuff. Unless you want to give a lot of space to the nationalist left, which I guess you have to be able to reflect. I guess I shouldn't get mad that these are reflecting things yeah, <laughs> this is reflecting a variety of different positions, but it's just, it occurs to me how many of these are questions that are best answered as both and plus more. Like revolution and reform, maybe? That's yeah. a weird one. I got 55% reform, 45% revolution. Yeah, I got 60% reform. I don't know why. I'm more revolutionary than you. So I think much it's probably because I said something, one of the questions pissed me off. <laughs> and I said strongly disagree just because of the right. framing or whatever. <laughs> But no, I think, you know, my actual position on that for a lot of these is 51-51 with a little synthesis in the middle. You need that shit. Yeah. It's like, what do you mean by revolution? What they mean by revolution? I probably almost wish I'd gotten a lower score on it. I'm neither in favor of the sort of blank check insurrectionary moment revolution where everything falls into place and a new state order is created by political organizations that have been organizing secretly in the wings or something. I'm against that concept of revolution. I'm also against the concept of just like reformism as a set of tweaks where you're like, oh, I've been elected. And I'm going to make a little tweak or something like that. If we just keep voting in center left parties, eventually it'll be perfect. What this chart does, what a lot of these charts do, but I think especially this one with its little icons and everything is set up a questionnaire where people can answer to get the results that they want where they can use this as a means of self-expression, where they know what the outcome is going to be. They know that they have to choose between left communism, orthodox Marxism, Marxism-Leninism, et cetera, et cetera. And they're answering the questions of how can I be a good democratic socialist and answer. On the question of revolution and reform, how can I make my little bar show that I can show my friends 100% revolution because I'm a real one and reform is for nerds? I found it really interesting as a way of being like, oh, this is how someone who's maybe a Marxist-Leninist sees all these questions. Not saying every Marxist-Leninist would agree with all the framings of all these things, but it was like, 
who would write a question like this? What was the question that you said? Who asks a question like that? The actual question. Do you remember what it was? It was something like nationalist impulses are unacceptable impulses in a socialist society. And part of me is like, okay, like I don't really like nationalism, but do I want my society to dictate what are and aren't acceptable impulses? Like, I just disagree with the notion of unacceptable impulses. So, like, how do I answer this? Because I feel like if I say they're acceptable, the test thinks I'm pro-nationalism. But now as I'm saying that, I'm like, oh, God, there are some unacceptable impulses. Murdering babies. Aaron, you saying that's not an unacceptable impulse? Ruling out murdering babies and well, some other stuff. If you gave me the, you know, is murdering babies an acceptable impulse? And it was a multiple choice question. And one of them is like, that's a completely unacceptable impulse. And then the other one is it's completely unacceptable to do that to babies, but people are going to have all sorts of weird impulses they need to deal with themselves in their head. Oh, yeah. But yeah, if I don't you... <laughs> want to be getting on people who have like intrusive thoughts or impulses that they know how to deal with. But if you have consistent impulses like this, I think it is a matter that you would want to talk to other people about because Absolutely. it is a pretty extreme thing to have an impulse to do. And generally in society, we'd want to dissuade that type of impulse any chance that we get in a respectable egalitarian friendly horizontal way i'd be like slam yeah. that motherfucking checkbox <laughs> where was that answer on the test jeez i think this left values quiz has a lot of value over some of the other ones that we've talked about in terms of how much it can help people within a community differentiate themselves i don't want to be like totally fully critical i like that there's seven values i oh, like yeah, that yeah. it's a ranking from one to five instead of binaries i'm glad it exists i'm not advocating for the test being disappeared. I recommend people take it. I think it's a good conversation. It shouldn't be photoshopped out of the old photos. It should be allowed to. <laughs> Absolutely. Here's a fun little thought experiment for everyone. When you're doing the left values test, just imagine that you're a school child in Soviet Russia. And if you get the wrong answers, you could get in trouble. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's it for chart these boys. This was a long one. The more we didn't like it, the longer it goes. Welcome back to another Wrong Town History moment from our heritage. It is with great sadness that we at Wrong Town History have to announce legendary military general Gren Grenston has died at the age of 101. She was an incredible military general, and any historian will tell you the reason that Gren Grenston is our favorite legendary general of the city-state of Wrongtown is that she ruthlessly suppressed any and all charts that extended beyond the second dimension, anything that brought any sort of color elements or other doors to chaos, you know, not being a square, having mislabeled axes, you know, charts beyond that, it's too hard to keep that in your head, especially more than one. And Gren Grenston knew that, and that's what made her an incredible and ruthless military commander. She upheld that chart, keeping everything orderly so Wrongtown can compete in the intermunicipal sphere. She used ruthless military force to crack down on anything that would challenge that. Five-dimensional charts, seven-dimensional charts, two three-dimensional charts that work together, charts made up of other little charts, charts that have color elements or pattern elements. Some of these things had so many sliders with so many variables, it wasn't even clear what kind of shape they were at all. During the spherical chart crisis, her deft hand and smart-as-a-whip leadership resulted in the detention or execution of 15,000 criminals. <laughs> wow. Without you, Gren, I honestly don't know how we're going to hold these back. 
Gren Grenston, we at Wrongtown History salute you for your sacrifice to protect the sacred charts we grew up with, the true charts that actually connect to reality, and no amount of blood spilled is too much to protect that. Gren Grenston, you were our rock. You are our favorite. We are going to be naming this day after her. It is now a holiday. Thank you. That was another Wrongtown History learning moment. Knowing all the problems with political charts, there's a certain joy in making one yourself. It's fun to set up the spectrums, set up all those implications. Whether you're trying to be pseudo-objective or whether you're just trying to push some brash political partisan message, it's always kind of fun to map the stuff out in your own way. It's something I recommend trying out. Yeah, making up your own spectrums, even if it's just a line and like from the most this thing I like to the most this thing I don't, and then just plop different things on the chart and like map them out by it, it can be incredibly satisfying. It's often really fun and funny. We've made a few charts in our day. Sean and I had a chart-making spurt a while back, like a growth spurt. We went through a childhood phase where we weren't making any charts, and then there was a puberty where we were making charts, and then an adult phase where we stopped making charts again, and that's where we've been since. But in our metaphorical growth spurt, as you mentioned, what motivated a lot of the charts that we made back then was the idea that by putting two things on the chart next to each other, you could troll someone. That was a big part. But in my defense, I also thought some of the spectra were legitimately interesting ways to think about politics that weren't the normal ones. It's actually a really valuable exercise. And I think approaching it from the absurd kind of, I don't know, one of the ones that you made that I really like, it was like a quadrant, but the idea was ideally you want to be in the center explicitly. Like the framing of it was that the closer to the middle, it's closer to an ideal society. Yeah. Rather than having the x-axis and the y-axis represent single spectrums from A to B, it was like A to minus B and to plus B. There's this golden thing in the middle, and then there's two different ways that you could deviate from it and make a mistake. So on the y spectrum, you had in the center swift pragmatic reform for social and economic justice. And then too far towards the top is you just support the status quo. And then that also is a system that will degenerate over time, according to this map. So it's status quo slash degeneration to a negative state. But the other way you cannot be in favor of swift pragmatic reform for social and economic justice is to be a regressive revolutionary. So anyone who's trying to change things too fast or in a revolutionary way, it's inherently regressive and it's at the bottom of the chart. So you can already hear that the way this is framed might anger some people potentially, but I thought it was really interesting. And then, okay, so, and then for the top one in the center is strong fact based intersubjective analysis. And the two ends are pseudo objective science worship and postmodern relativism slash religion. So I had this thing where I had like a hate on for people like Sam Harris and people who are like, oh, everything I think is objective or like Ayn Rand, like objectivism. So I was like, there's people who think they're way too objective and there's people who are like anything's true, postmodern relativism, or they believe in religion. So I was like, both of those are wrong. In the center, you have fact-based intersubjective analysis. So other than I think that being an interesting way to set up a chart, the true purpose behind this chart is that you can put Nazism and Marxism-Leninism right beside each other. 
they both want to change society really fast. It's kind of like a revolutionary ideology. And they both think that they have objective views about the world. So that puts them in one corner. And just to criticize that now briefly, sure. I think it's fair to say that you could place the Nazism on the religiosity side. There Absolutely. are cultists. Yeah. And you could even argue that Marxist-Leninists argue for a variety of positions, including, but not limited to, swift and pragmatic reforms. Yeah. I mean, obviously through a vanguard party and dictatorship of the proletariat. But there's a lot of potential problems with this chart, despite how much it still delights me. But... Another great thing about it is that every corner is kind of fascist. I put Italian fascism in the postmodern relativist corner that's also a regressive revolutionary. But then I put like modern Evo psych fascism, I called it, in the status quo section, but pseudo objective science worship, which I also was able to put that near Hillary Clinton. She's a bit more fact based, but just the status quo. Donald Trump is status quo, but way in the postmodern relativism side. Something that I like about this chart that's interesting is it's almost an extension of the first political chart that we were ever shown as a young person, the spectrum from left to right, where it's good to be around the middle. Yeah. And it's sort of explicit, like you want to be a moderate because if you go too far to the end, you're going to start killing people. This does the exact same thing, except in a much more detailed way with the intention of just generally putting things next to each other in a way. <laughs> <laughs> that is intended to elicit certain reactions from certain people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's also just so subjective, like where you put things on this. Like what's revolutionary and what's a swift pragmatic reform is a bit. Can you justify why you put rational wiki on the regressive revolutionary side? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea why that's there. Well, it's a hell of a chart. And if you want to see it yourself, it's on our Facebook page and also on the Facebook page, Accurate Political Charts, where we were briefly putting four years ago all of the least accurate political charts we could make or find. Although we think some of them have good points. Don't get me wrong. I had one where I took like a fractal image and just wrote words on it, like blessed liberalism. Commun I don't want to go through all of it, but it's kind of cool. My favorite thing about doing these charts was making up the specific ideologies and then placing them. Something as absurd as just like Trotskyist post-scarcity second wave feminism or something yeah, like that. Yeah, where does that go? And, then, and just being like, well, it's definitely going to be to the right of that because that process is really fun. How about the spectrum one? Low political consciousness versus high political consciousness. Yeah, I think this was my favorite one that I did during our little growth spurt there of <laughs> spectrums. The concept was that there's just a single gradient from high political consciousness to low political consciousness. On the low end, you're going to find stuff like gas price voters, vague, thoughtless cosmopolitan liberals, eco-fascists, and shrieking apes who run flinging shit and piss like an animal. In the middle, you're going to find stuff like meritocratic megacorporation that employs everyone and pays according to need. Um <laughs> Business as usual, neoliberal partisan respectability politics played like the sick game that it is. Teens who cause trouble. And then on the high end of the spectrum, you're going to run into stuff like what can only be described as a perfect mix of all features culminating in permanent utopia, benevolent, omnipotent philosopher kings raised from birth without privacy and under the kill switch of the masses, and a yet unnamed political phenomenon, which is growing in numbers day by day, which will transition us to technological post-scarcity. It's a nice chart. I put both 
I remember finding this funny at the time was 18-year-old communists who learned everything they know from memes is near the top of a high political consciousness chart, but I also placed it next to the average conservative uncle, which I also consider to have high political consciousness. And also people who watch Alex Jones and understand that he's in on the conspiracy is at the same line there. Yeah, that shit's true. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you know, describing spectrums, maps, and audio, it's... uh this podcast is like trying to make a delicious dish, which is an homage to the concept of freedom or something, you know, like we're doing as best we can with the gap between the visual and the audio realm. Yeah. If this was a video podcast, this <laughs> section would have been shorter. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to our podcast audio podcast listener. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to see the charts, you can look up accurate political charts on Facebook and yeah, check them out. They're not all OC, but I think the ones that aren't are mostly labeled. Anyway. Attention, everyone who's interested in objective science. Wrong Boys Mystery Company has a major announcement. We have spent the past year looking through microscopes, looking through magnifying glasses, looking through telescopes to see what the world of politics is actually like when you look at it through these instruments. And we think we've discovered something. It's long been asked by political scientists, what shape is politics? It's been theorized it's a line. It's been theorized it's a cube. It's even been theorized it's some sort of beyond comprehension mega cube. But we did some deep digging, some deep philosophizing on this, and we've discovered something I think is world historic. It is the actual true shape of politics, the real shape of politics itself. The moment's finally here. We're going to tell everyone what the shape is. Not a square, not even a cube. Politics is a triangular pyramid made up of tiny cubes. I know, I know, seems obvious when you hear it. Oh, of course, that's what politics are shaped like. I was expecting some sort of box shape, but when you think about politics, oh, it's a triangular pyramid actually. Oh, and it's made of tiny little cubes. Oh, that explains so much. And the pyramid's made up of five quints, five sub-pyramids, and it fractally nests within itself. And the tiny cubes can be split into tiny octants, so it's got incredible explanatory power. I know, we actually considered not telling anyone, because we thought this idea would be too powerful, that it would give too much strength to our enemies. But we decided that it's right. It's right for everyone to know because it's the truth. It's objective science like physics. It is facts. It is science. It is the actual shape of politics as it exists in the world, makes intuitive sense, triangular pyramid made up of tiny cubes. The world deserved to know, and we deserve to tell them. Just desserts at last. Thank you for listening to our announcement. Aaron, are you ready to get triangular pyramid tiny cube pilled? <laughs> Because this shit's real. It's not just a joke. Yeah. I feel like we have to explain it better. Let's try to start at first principles. Okay, first. It's a pyramid, right? But it's made of tiny cubes. You following me? All I right. feel like we should skip the cubes until we've fully described the pyramid. No, you're totally right. You really got to see it to believe it. But okay, so here's the basic concept. A couple months ago, I was thinking about the shape of politics for like a day. I was like on a, not like a literal drug trip, but like a metaphorical, like it was my trip for the day. I was thinking about it graphing stuff out, trying different things. And I was like, thinking in 3D space. You came up with a triangular pyramid. And so there's three points on the bottom and one on the top, four points total. If you think about a pyramid, you can imagine three smaller pyramids 
making up the bottom three corners, right? And then you could imagine a fourth pyramid sitting with its bottom three corners on the tips of those three pyramids to make the top. Four of them kind of make up the shape of the pyramid, and then there's an inverted fifth one in the center. Are we explaining this well? Thinking in 3D space, the 3D Triforce, if you're familiar with Triforce from Legend of Zelda, you know, it's like a triangle with an inverted triangle in the middle. So what makes up that triangle is four triangles, including an inverted one. 3D version of that, we have four pyramids. Four pyramids, but fifth being the upside down pyramid at the center. Exactly. Five sections to a triangular pyramid. A quadrant is when there's four sections to something. A quint is when there's five, or a quintant, but we're calling it a quint. Quint for short. Those four pyramids that make up the main pyramid are the four main quints, and then there's like a centrist quint. But the four main quints all have labels. Once you've got this 3D object in your head, imagine each of these four corners represent something. One is hierarchism, the philosophical assumption of the betterness of some over others, and its peak of hierarchism, its ultimate form, is something akin to slavery, Nazism, etc. Another peak, marketism. The concept of markets mediating people's lives, the peak of that, again, being pure markets, a 100% market society, state only exists to facilitate the market, all things are dealt with through the market, maybe you'd call that an extreme form of anarcho-capitalism or neoliberalism or something like that. The next quint, centralism, is the peak of centralism would be something like a efficiently organized, technocratic, centralized society. You can think of that as like maybe a meritocracy or technocracy as being the peak of that. The final peak is communalism, which you could also maybe paraphrase as communism, something similar to that, sharing with people, irreducible minimum, all the great things that come out of a perfect utopian society that we love so much. So one thing about triangular pyramids that you might know is that all four peaks or corners are equally far apart from each other. On this chart, the peak of centralism and the peak of marketism are equally as far away as the peak of centralism and the peak of hierarchism. They're all opposites of each other in a sense. This allows you to make four things all opposed to one another. Moving towards the peak of any one of these things means you move further away from the peaks of all the others. For example, the more communalist you are, the less hierarchical centralist and marketist you are. The more marketist you are, the less hierarchist, communalist, and centralist you are. They always exist in a tension with the opposite three. One of the things that I just really enjoy about this is how, by the implications of its shape, it produces different discourses related to the way these ideas relate to each other. So each of these five pyramids that make up this bigger pyramid, you can then have five smaller pyramids in each of them. So it can be recursive. Like within the communalist corner of the pyramid, there is a smaller fractal version of the same pyramid within that. So you have the peak of communalism is that same corner again, and that would be like where the smaller super communalism is. But within the communalist pyramid, there would be the hierarchism peak. So that's the corner of communalism that is closest to the ideology of hierarchism would be one quint of the communalism quint, like a quint within a quint. And there would be also for marketism and centralism as well. Like within any one quint, you can be closer or further away to any of the other quints. 
it is a little bit more complex than answering a bunch of like yes and no questions in an HTML and stuff, but it's also pretty straightforward. So there's hierarchism, marketism, communalism, and centralism. These are the four corresponding values to this. What one is primary to you? What is the root of your ideology, the focus of your ideology? Is it more of like a technocratic aim, a communist aim, a hierarchical aim, like a stratification aim, or a market aim? That's going to determine what quint you're in. Then ask the question again. So I've picked my major. What's my minor? I'm a communalist with a minor in marketism. That's like where a mutualist would be. A mutualist who's oriented in social needs. Someone who wants to use markets to alleviate social problems would be in the marketism subquint of the communalism quint. And then you can go a step further by doing the same process again. And then through that recursive process down, you can find sort of a specific spot in 3D space that you could be. And you can also see where people are in relation to you. I think it would be a lot more intuitive if there was maybe a virtual reality 3D space you could enter, but at least like a 3D modeling program that asked you questions and placed you. It's hard to describe over voice and even two-dimensional drawings of it kind of fall flat. But I imagine if there was a 3D model, it would really pop. I mean, I hope you've been able to construct a 3D model in your head with us during this part. If not, I'm really sorry for every moment it took up describing. Oh, and I'm also sorry for what's to come because we've been talking about the triangular pyramids, but of course yeah, they're made up of tiny cubes. Made up of tiny cubes. Who could forget? So once you found your point in 3D space inside the triangular pyramid, on that point, it's another chart. One way to think about this is if you were to imagine left-right axis as it normally is, and on that left-right axis, if you were to place another horizontal axis, maybe you could make them perpendicular just so you could see it, but it's like you're placing one axis over another axis. In this one, we're taking this triangular pyramid axis and we're inserting a cubed axis over it. I know, I know it's confusing, but... If it helps, you can think of this as three sliders and not a cube. Yeah, your point in the triangular pyramid could just be made up of three more sliders, but I like the cube. Thinking of a tiny little cube inside my triangular pyramid, that's what I like about it. So I can't give that up personally, but to each their own. So these tiny little cubes, they're made up of three more dichotomies, three more spectra tensions where you can place yourself on it. You know, there's science versus mysticism, process versus blueprints, and propertarian versus usufructian. So based on where you fit on those spectrums, you're going to find yourself in one of the subcubes, of which there are a total of eight. For example, I find myself in the subcube of usufructian scientific process. Usufructian, I'm for that. But on the other two, I'm a bit more centrist. I believe process and blueprints are interrelated and they shouldn't necessarily be dichotomized in this way. And science versus mysticism, depending what you mean by those things, some people by mysticism just mean like believing whatever you want. And some people have some weird things they believe about. So I don't know. You know what? I'll confess. I, to the very end, had trouble picking what those three things would be that would make up the cubes. You just knew there needed to be a cube because that's the shape. I knew it was the right shape. Yeah, we found yeah. the shape for sure. But the actual labels, I think even the labels in the original pyramid, I'm willing to take a scalpel to that. It's just important to me that people know the shape. I haven't found any faults with the pyramid, but the cubes I'm not so sure about. But I would say I'm a process blueprint centrist, usufructian, and... 
I'm going to have to lean science if I have to pick. What I really did there in the cubes is I sort of put my own will to power in it by shaping it to my own designs to force people to realize that they want to be usufructian and not propertarian, for example, or to start conversations about how blueprints are insufficient in themselves and that it actually needs to be a process. And I mean, the science versus mysticism one just felt easy. I don't really actually feel that passionate about it, but... (laughs) Yeah. So basically what we've done here is we've created a very hard to understand political compass that's only purpose is to distinguish people who agree with me from people who don't. Who's this Yusufrechtian blueprint science hierarchist in the communalist quadrant of hierarchy? Like maybe someone's there. I'm not saying no one's there, but what I'm saying is that person doesn't think I believe in hierarchism and but with a communalist bent and I'm really into I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm saying it's right, but I'm saying it's most right for people who agree with us. Those are the people who are going to be like, oh, yeah, if I can wrap my head around (laughs) this needlessly complicated thing, it makes so much sense. I hope one day this will slap for me. Something I like about this too, with the quint and subquint system, when you're thinking about these nested triangular prisms, there's something really satisfying about that. It feels more organic to the world. It feels like than say like a point from zero to 10 or something versus another point to zero to 10 or something. But the idea of a, a political chart that's based on a nested system of recurrence at different scales, like this fractal, right? that determining your position on this thing is a matter of fractally pushing down through the same shape until you get to your final point, which would take like five or six questions or five or six short surveys. The thing I really liked about the pyramid shape is that it's one of the only political charts I've seen that didn't rely on just multiple dichotomies. Like even the seven axis one we did or the five axis one we did, it's just a whole bunch of two. This versus this. Yeah, a whole bunch of spectras comparing one thing to one other thing. But with the pyramid, if you can find four things you're willing to say all oppose each other, you can set up four variables that are all opposed like that. It's like you can't break down that pyramid just into hierarchism versus as like, it's saying they're all interrelated to each other in a way. Like if we had done the left values one in a way where it inherently tied party versus union to ecological versus product, I don't know why you would want to, but... I've never seen a political map attempt to do that before. But that's how the real world actually is. It's not a whole bunch of like A to B spectras where people follow along these lines. It's like sometimes there's like four different things opposing each other in a space. Shaping it that way really, I want to say it escapes the spectrum problem, but it doesn't quite. Like it makes it more unassailable because it's vaguer. Does that make sense? Like saying these two things are opposed and the closer you move to one, the further you are from the other. It's easy to poke holes in that, but moving towards one moves you away from three other things. It's just harder to hold that in your head and like think of the reasons why it's wrong. Yeah, and then, <laughs> then we haven't even gotten the cubes yet. So I, <laughs> I look forward to all the principled and pragmatic critiques, ideas for relabeling of the quints. Absolutely. Um, or alternative shapes that might be useful for the development of political understanding. Yeah, I think it's great. I find it significantly lacking in certain ways, but I, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just being modest. I think it's objectively true, like science or physics. Two hours later. 
Hey everyone, and welcome to Wrong Boys Correction Time. Now, we know that on the political chart of correctness, you usually expect to see the wrong boys firmly over on the correct side. But sometimes, on some charts, the boys are charted as incorrect. And this is one of those instances. We're going to have a little humility and issue an important correction. Okay, so on that last segment, after we finished recording, we pulled out the pens and science instruments again. And we were just talking about how hard it is to hold all these concepts in your head and how we were worried we might not have been able to convey some of the nuances of the objectively true way to look at politics. And we realized that all this time, when we had imagined a three-dimensional triforce, we thought that an upside-down triangular pyramid in the middle would be the natural shape there. But unfortunately, we were thinking of rectangular pyramids that would hold up. But this did not hold up. Actually, we found after quite a bit of sketching, brain wrinkles, there's some frustration from both of us at how hard it was to conceive of the differing pieces of information we were receiving. It's an octahedron, folks. That's eight faces. They're all triangles. They're all the same size. This doesn't change too many things. There's still five quints and the four corner quints are still shaped like pyramids, just like we said, but the central quint for centrism is shaped like an octahedron. So we didn't talk about the centrist quint very much anyway. So it's not that big. It's just, it's a tetrahedron. That's the shape of the overall pyramid thing, the triangular pyramid we call it. It's a tetrahedron and an octahedron is in the center. It's just what happens. Sometimes science updates itself when you learn new things. Yeah. I think that's just more proof that we're in the scientific process space. We're able to update our priors, admit we were wrong, admit we had egg in our face, and frankly admit hadn't thought that much about the middle part for like months. So egg on our face, we're sorry. Hopefully it helps us all visualize shapes a little better in the future. I know it did for me, absolutely. Oh yeah, my shape imagination has been expanded, stretched out. That was another Wrong Boys correction moment, the part of the show where we issue a correction for something we just said that we realized we didn't understand well enough the first time. And that's when you issue a correction. Thank you. So political charts aren't a mirror of nature. They're not a mirror of politics. They're tools for conveying information. They can be tools for self-expression. They can be tools for differentiation within a group, distinguishing between groups. It's inconceivable that we could figure out a shape that accurately maps to the world of politics. It's like trying to translate a delicious recipe for soup into a number one hit song. You could make a hit song, but you would need to add things that aren't recipe of soup elements to it. Yeah, and you could definitely like you make could, reference to the parts of the recipe. I mean, you could even make the whole lyrics out of the recipe, potentially. Add two eggs, beat them up, you know, whatever the, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could even find stuff like the pacing and the timing of the recipe. You could take deep influence from this recipe, but you're never going to really be able to convey the experience of eating the finished product there. No, no, no. It's just not the same medium. (laughs) It's just obvious. But it's also not obvious because people do actually think that these charts and these labels and these categories and these things we create are more than just labels and charts and categories, like more than just ways of trying to understand the world, but they are the world themselves. 
that like liberalism isn't just a word that we use to point to certain idea sets in relationship to other idea sets or to certain movements throughout history. Liberalism isn't just the label that we're using to gesture. The way these things get talked about sometimes is that like liberalism is in and of itself a thing that is solid over time and specific. Liberalism is a particularly good example because of the incredible definition wobble you have on that word. Liberalism on your Facebook political thing, very liberal means communist, but to a communist, very liberal means conservative. Liberals can refer to like classical liberalism, like free speech sort of stuff. It can also refer to more social justice oriented stuff. Yeah, you're being libs, owning the libs. It's such a great example why in politics we have to remind ourselves not to take things too literally. Because if you start believing any one of those definitions of liberal is the definition of liberal, you're going to shut yourself off to understanding what other people are saying. Yeah. Liberalism is an especially good one, but like it's true for what a conservative thinks of when they think of communism versus what you think of when you think of communism. Two very different things. What a Marxist means when they say an anarchist versus what I mean when I say an anarchist aren't even the same thing. Like it's referring to the same people, but I think I imagine the ideology a little differently from each other. And then even historically within the anarchist community or any of these communities, you can be like, oh yeah, in anarchism, there's these major cleavage between these two exactly opposite schools of thought of what anarchism means and how you should apply it. But there's not just like one like that. It's like there's like seven or eight anarchisms floating around, one of which I think is pretty good. (laughs) A few of them are pretty good, but like all these words are ways that we're using to kind of like point in a direction. And then you got to be like, okay, but do you mean like this or like this? And you can kind of like zero in with a person about what the two of you mean. And you can like talk to each other. It's a real thing. We can communicate with each other. We're not saying words are meaningless and like it's all hopeless and everyone just means different things all the time. It is kind of like that. But like, I think some of the reasons sometimes people cling to literalism is because without it, they fear meaninglessness and that everything is just nothing. If liberalism doesn't mean specifically the ideology of pro-markets, rugged individualism, people interacting in a marketplace to solve problems, then what does liberalism possibly mean? But it can mean that and other things. And it can mean that when you're talking about it and we can all get that. And that's fine, you know? I heard an interesting suggestion that we use numerical notation and start differentiating between different synonyms or different uses of the same word of being like, you're saying liberalism under lowercase little four. I've been using lowercase two. And like, if you could just set up a grid when it comes to political disputes over terminology. I wonder how many liberalisms we'd get to once you start really like. Yeah, when you open up the floodgates (laughs) to people to. My preferred liberalism is number 48392. But some people really love 39863. I don't know. I just read the one that you picked, and it's really close to Liberalism 3. Like, why couldn't you just do Liberalism 3? <laughs> oh, well, actually, Liberalism 3 split into 814 and 912, but then there were some, and I could get all the way to 48862, no, but... Nobody uses Liberalism 3 anymore. It's been almost entirely abandoned. <laughs> some people see it as an umbrella for a whole bunch of the other sub-liberalisms, but most of those sub-liberalisms we th- we reject. That. <laughs> we think they're a liberal 48, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's a beautiful dream to have all those subnumbered things, but I feel like people would find ways to argue. And when people see the world very rigidly in a way that we describe as literalism, the way that people sometimes talk about biblical literalism, you know, taking the word of the Bible literally, not that there aren't things that you shouldn't sometimes take literally, etc., but something like a political identification, like I'm really an anarchist, I am it, my essence. It's got this sort of like static view of the universe baked into it rather than a developmental view. Being is becoming. Things become things over time. A is not just A. Yeah. Part of the reason liberalism has so many definitions is because over time, people who were liberals shift slightly on various policies or like you can trace lineage of these various types of liberalism through historical routes. And then it makes sense oh, how they connected when these issues happened in this way in history and that's how these things got intertwined and then these thinkers later did this to it like it is developmental and that's part of the reality there for sure some people have suggested using different language constructs like e prime the basic idea is that you remove the verb is from your language instead of saying he is tall you'd be like he seems tall to me crafting the sentence in a way in which to ground any observation and the perspective it comes from with an understanding of it being part of a larger context. Advocates for E-prime basically argue that the isness in language generates a type of literalism and that we can free ourselves from these rigidities by talking about how things seem, how things are perceived. It's an interesting thought experiment anyways, to just recognize that you're taking in information through your sense organs and that you're brain is assembling it and then you're sharing what you think and not what is out there yeah that's just like good i think psychological self-maintenance in general is like learning to understand the difference between your thoughts and reality and like you see this with certain people more than others they just seem to think how they think about the world and the world are the same thing. I think it's like childlike impulse almost in a sense. Say someone does something mean to you and you say, they hate me. Not, was that from hate? Was that like, I feel like I felt hate and I, I they feel, hate me. That's <laughs> yeah. the, how the world is. I felt bad when they said that to me and now I'm wondering if they hate me. That's a, yeah. now I'm unsure how much they like me. You're getting closer to describing what's actually happening, I guess in a way sort of rigorous. Yeah. But also at the same time, like, yeah, I can imagine really being burdened by the feeling that people hate me and really pleased by the uncertainty of whether or not they do. Uh, so it seems like it's a useful tool, you know, like maybe perhaps they hate me. It's a much better position. <laughs> yeah. The hard part though, is when that you feel like, oh, they love me. It's like, well, I feels like they love me. <laughs> Got to get a bit of distance from that too. You know, you got to take a little bad with the good. You get to keep a little good with the bad. That's yeah, a, absolutely. A guy who claimed to be enlightened told me that you should do that. <laughs> Claiming to be enlightened. I feel like saying that makes you seem unenlightened, but maybe I'm just less enlightened or maybe it's more enlightened. Who knows? To be fair to this guy, I think it was probably more like other people called him enlightened and he didn't object. Yeah, that's less bad for sure. Welcome back to another Wrong Town History Learning Moment. This story starts at the end of a prolonged state of peace 
in Wrongtown. What had happened earlier was the political compass was overthrown by a political cube with a z-axis. Yeah, that happened. And the cube order was stable for quite some time, but it ended up being overthrown by the order of the pyramid made of tiny cubes. It was discovered by the wrong boys. First it was rejected, eventually it was accepted to be the map that best matched the evidence. Wrongtown embraced it fully, and there was hundreds of years of peace and prosperity. And that's where Wrongtown history comes in. What happens next? It was Inauguration Day, and the new Supreme Commander of Wrongtown, Brendel W. Squint, who had been swept into office on a wave of popular support, massive numbers in the election, was seen as a figure of hope and change. On the day of their inauguration, they were called into an office for a secret meeting with head government scientists and the heads of the intelligence agencies. We know this from secret journals leaked after their death. And what they were told was that the pyramid made up of tiny cubes, the basis of Wrongtown's sense of itself and sense of the people within it was, according to new scientific discoveries, actually a lie. You know, these heads of intelligence agencies, the scientists, they didn't know whether to reveal this to the public, cause incredible amounts of chaos, or continue the facade that the pyramid tiny cube chart was true, a type of noble lie. This posed a serious ethical and strategic dilemma for Brendel W. Squint. They campaigned on evidence-based policy. The pyramid made of tiny cubes was featured in a lot of their campaign materials. They deliberated for a long time, making long walks around the mayoral office, glancing over the city, looking at the portraits of the previous mayors for inspiration, thinking about what they would want, what they intended when they framed this all in the first place. And ultimately, Commander W. Squint decided to tell the noble lie, hide the truth for the good of the people, because the threat of reintroducing chaos into the system could be disastrous. You know, the old legend of 10 days of madness, something you've been told since you were a kid. Lying about the shape of politics would mean that babies would get fed on time, medicine would get moving through pill bottles, the whole system would keep working, and they weren't willing to throw that into disarray on the possibility of letting people know the truth, that the map doesn't match the territory. In my personal opinion, it was a heroic decision by a great statesman that was very soon after disrupted by someone else, someone bad. The commander, for their part, called it the greatest mistake of their career. Now, it's unclear who exactly leaked the secret, but the secret got out. And specifically, it got out to W. Squint's greatest political rival, Alabani Tobacco, who, with this information, was able to exploit this well-meaning politician who was trying to keep society running. But nevertheless, the fact that he wasn't telling the truth opened him up to a massive and unexpected challenge from Tobacco in the next campaign for mayor. Tobacco ran an anti-establishment campaign saying things like the pyramid of the hoax and we need to investigate the tiny cubes, releasing reports and a lot of it was misinformation but there was a kernel of truth to it which was that the chart didn't match the world. 
Brendel W. Squint, sensing the emergency, resigned in disgrace for fibbing about the charts. Their final act in office to inscribe the truth, the whole truth, about what we do and don't know about charts, onto stone tablets at City Hall. In the end, Tobacco's outsider campaign was halted in its tracks by cancel culture gone mad, and Squint's deputy mayor, Himbo Bacon, took control in the town without a chart. But this time, being a town without a chart wasn't just a popular idiom, a common metaphor used in day-to-day life. It was real. A literal town with no chart. And so, while the scientists and the philosophers had already begun the work of devising new and hopefully more perfect charts, many of the citizens of Wrongtown felt aimless. They didn't know how to exist in a town where, for the first time in thousands of years, there was no official, legal, political chart that everyone believed was objectively true. It scared people. But there was also hope moving into this uncharted territory of the future. There was a real possibility for things to unfold in ways that could increase understanding of the world and of each other. And so that hope kept them moving forward. It was just a dream at that point, an idea that a perfect chart could be built and that it would chart the way towards a perfect society. Thanks for listening. That was another Wrong Town History moment from our heritage. So I guess in summary, what can we say? I mean, political charts can be used for a number of things. One of the things they can do is they can help show people the way that you think in the way that you design it. They can help us find places where we might have enough agreement with other people to have places of where we could collaborate with them because we find that our tiny little cubes match. Yeah, they can help us to understand the political world better. As long as you're not imagining this one chart is the only chart, it's the true chart. I think if you're taking a pluralist view that many charts can have value in many different situations, then unless they're just explicitly made to be silly, they're all usually talking about something potentially true. Even the ones I hate the most, there's something they're talking about. I think they all have a bit of truth in them, maybe differing amounts, but a bit. I think especially a chart that arises out of an individual's consciousness trying to express themselves. When I imagine a bunch of people all agreeing like, oh, this chart is the way, I'm like, oh, that's sort of sad. But if I imagine like the same amount of people all more or less drawing the same chart themselves and being like, this is what I think, then I'm like, yeah, good job. Right, right, right. (laughs) But I think the expressive element of the creation of political charts is a really valuable part of it. And it'd be interesting to imagine a culture where there was a excessive, we could say liberal, lowercase five amount of charts being made. Everyone just kind of makes their own chart. This is mine. I know it's pretty similar to one a lot of people have made, but I made these tweaks and everyone's just making their own charts all the time. Yeah, I guess you can do that on GitHub. It looks like with the left values test was made based on this other test, eight values and it's open source. Yeah, no, I fantasized about making a test before, but... It's harder to make a test than a chart because you got to come up with all the questions and the- how they correspond. Yeah. Whew. I'm so glad I can't see under the hood of these things because I would just claw my eyes out and scream <laughs> until yeah. I die. <sighs> the other thing that would make me claw my eyes out and scream until I die is if nobody ever supported us on Patreon. But thankfully, luckily for us, 
Many people are supporting us on Patreon, and those people are making this entire show possible and are putting food in my mouth and in Sean's mouth. These microphones were bought by them, the software we used to edit. All kinds of stuff. So, so appreciated. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, everyone who's giving to the show, because without you, we couldn't do it. We've got a few benefits that I think are pretty cool. We got a book club that meets on Discord to talk about different readings. We read through books. We've also got bonus content updates from behind the scenes, that kind of stuff. And yeah, access to the Discord server. There's a community there of really, really awesome people that are like funny and fun and the type of people you imagine would like this type of stuff. It's a great, (laughs) it's a really, really great group of people. I like them, but it makes sense because they like our show. So it makes sense that you would like them since they like us. Yeah. We've got some shared interests. (laughs) Yeah. Similar dispositions towards this wild wreck of a society that's careening towards a total eco-apocalypse unless people talk to their neighbors more, et cetera. But that's for a different episode. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. Yeah. Thanks again so much for listening. And thank you for giving us your time and attention today. And if you make any political charts yourself, please send them to us. We want to see new ones. We want our brains bent by charts. Thank you. Next time on Wrongtown Future History Moment, we play audio believed to be from futuristic scientists in a futuristic lab working to find the true, real shape of politics. Learning about geometry has really expanded my horizons for what's possible here. At first I thought politics must be a pentagonal prism, then for a while I was thinking octagonal pyramid, but now I really think it might be a hyperboloid. My leading theory at this moment is that good politics is like a donut-like torus wrapped around a hyperboloid and they never touch and the hyperboloid is the bad politics. Taurus is the good. They never quite touch. Oh my god, I saw the same thing in a dream. Because hyperboloids, of course, are like an hourglass shape. If you put a torus around it, it can fit in there in a way, but not touch. And if you zoom in really close, they're made up of octagonal pyramids, where the point of the octagonal pyramid is either something purely good or purely bad, depending on whether they're in the torus or the hyperboloid. In my dream, the torus was actually spinning, and depending on what time of year it was different types of bad politics interacted with different types of good politics in different ways. That matches some of the most advanced political chart theory right now, which is saying that whether or not politics are good is actually partially based on the time of day and the time of year. What do you think about this other upstart theory that it's a rhombicosa-dodecahedron? Oh, that's just nonsense. I, I can't. <laughs> yeah. Now, I've, we all have our limits, and for me, it's the rhombicosa-dodecahedron. I just don't think that's part of the shape of politics. Call me old-fashioned. The whole Archimedean solid contingent on this, like, oh, it's got to be a convex uniform polyhedra. 
I think they're all ideologues. Yeah, on the political chart, from good political chart makers to pedophiles, they're definitely on the pedophile side. Well, let's get to work writing these findings up. I think they're very compelling. Absolutely. No, I'm completely compelled right now and thrilled. And that's natural, because this is thrilling, compelling stuff. So I don't blame you for feeling that way. Thank you for not blaming. I was worried. I was a little bit self-conscious that you were going to say, oh, it's not appropriate. But now that you're actually saying it's appropriate, there's a load off my shoulders and I can focus on the work.